the beautiful thing about your story is that in, in many ways you built your product for yourself. The punchline for those early days, I believe, is pain. Your customers need to scream repeatedly about a problem. If they just make a feature request or they say it would be nice to have, you should just say no and go ahead and improve what you have already. You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast. Hello, everyone. On today's podcast, we have no one else but the founder of FreshBooks, Mike McDermott. Welcome. <laughs> hey, Carlos. Thanks for having me. Super excited to hear your story. I know it's been a, a, an exciting one. I've, I, as I mentioned to you offline, I've listened to several of your other podcasts and, and some really good anecdotes there that I hope you'll, you'll surface. But also really interesting how long it's been for you as a journey. You know, on LinkedIn, you have it officially down to 17 years and counting. Um, and it's, you know, it's very few companies that can, can have that level of staying power, but a, a, a level of engagement from the community and love, frankly. And so congrats to that. And, uh, and with that, I want to hear the, the very beginning of your story. Tell us about when this came about. How, what were you doing? What was the context in your life? What drove you to create the company? Yeah, the, the first thing I want to say is I do think it's important to execute and do things quickly. But, uh, you know, it's been a journey. Uh, I think 17 years is great. I, I feel like something's broken and everyone wants to be like three to five years in everything. And I, I really just want to say, hey, I think long term thinking is awesome. Uh, and uh, I think it actually I'll say it's extra hard to stick around and do it for this long, but it's, uh, you know, as uh, Steve Jobs once famously said, it's, you know, those entrepreneurs who build things and flip them, they're not entrepreneurs. Like you got to gut it out and do the really, really hard stuff and stick around. And so I, I, uh, I just, I, I really think for those who are starting it on their journey, like having the right mindset really helps. And, you know, we're working on our, uh, you know, 10 year plus overnight success story. And that's, uh, that's just how these things, you know, go in reality most of the time. So just don't expect some magic thing to happen. I think that's uh, it's just the wrong way to think about things and just, you know, keep serving your customers and go. So, you know, to, with, with those platitudes kind of out there at the start, let's go into <laughs> the actual story. Uh, we, we got started um, when I, I was, I mean, it wasn't even we, it was me. I was, running a small design firm and I accidentally saved over an invoice. I was using Word and Excel to bill my clients. This is like literally January, 2003. And so I um, had been starting to learn how to basically build simple web applications, connect to database, all that good stuff. And I built a little tool for my clients to log into and, and see an invoice. And pretty soon we thought like, oh, you know, Maybe other people would like this too, but we're really just building it for myself and my clients. They liked it and started turning it into more of an application. And, you know, that took some time. It actually, you know, took us about 16 months to get live and get other people using it and moved into my parents' basement for three and a half years. And, and today, you know, we've got paying customers in over 100 countries. Over 20 million people have used the service since we started uh, I, um, what else can I tell you? Uh, we're about 400 and, you know, kind of towards 450 people and, uh, you know, have, uh, offices now in, uh, actually this is cool. This is, uh, in the last year we've gone from just a headquarters in Toronto, Canada to also being in, uh, in, uh, in Amsterdam, uh, to, to serve the European market and our customers there as well as, uh, 
North Carolina and Croatia. So the, the beautiful thing about your story is that in, in many ways you built your product for yourself, but that because you've been doing it for 17 years, you probably have been one of the very few founders who have learned their hard lessons in the very same place where you're trying to apply those lessons learned as it scales. You know, those early days and those early mistakes, then rehashing them and then trying to apply them as, as successes and victories. So I wanted to go into and dissect into some of the elements of, of the, the FreshBook story uh, across different segments. And the first one we're going to start off with is, is your customer engagement and then go through the other ones and then try to dissect all the lessons learned along that journey. So the first one is, you know, in that early days, you probably had a couple of customers who loved you and, and you were probably pretty tempted to sort of optimize for their needs rather than building a company that would scale as a product beyond just one or two or three companies needs. Walk us through those early days of, of how do you, how you made trade-offs between ending up being a consultancy for a few customers who really liked a couple of features versus steering a course in, in a specific direction. And if you made any mistakes there, feel free to share them. Well, um, no, it's, it's a real early stage product management problem, right? That's, this is kind of the heart of it. And it's like, Hey, we don't have that many people using it. How do we decide? I, I'll go ahead and say we had the good fortune of, you know, serving small business. And so we had like thousands of people signing up for our service. So we got to hear from enough variety of people that we were able to overcome some stuff. But, you know, with that as context, I think we probably have some nuggets other people can draw on. So I think, you know, the, the core thing to know is, yeah, if you, if you listen too closely to you know, either one customer, and I would even go one type of customer. So I think what you'll find when you're an early stage startup is the early adopters will be the first people to use your platform. You know, we've found that for sure. What I found was it can be dangerous if you don't understand you're talking to early adopters as well, because their needs and interests will start to, to go beyond what you really need to, to build right now. And so the, the punchline for those early days, I believe, is, uh, is pain. Your customers need to scream with pain repeatedly about a problem. If they just make a feature request or they say it would be nice to have, you should just say no and go ahead and improve what you have already. And this is after you've got some baseline feature set in place. I think that's where this problem gets, gets dangerous. Um, so, so I think at the start, when you don't have anything built, you want to talk to enough people and have enough understanding of the problem domain to, to basically you know, not have a single point of view that you're listening to. So I think if you're starting down the path of maybe building for one customer, go and find 10 people with kind of similar but different problems just to make sure you're not building, you know, custom software for one organization. I think that that's bad. But then once you have those 10 people and, and 10 or more people are using, I, I think you then need to be very mindful of, okay, if we're, we're only going to build something if the pain threshold is high enough. Otherwise, we're just going to improve what we have. And, and I think that is, that is kind of the idea. And I, I really liked, and, you know, these folks made a strong impression on me in the early days, the folks at 37 Signals, if you know them, and it's kind of like, how do you do less? I think it's a very good mindset and I still catch our teams putting stuff into the product where I'm like, why, you know, like there's, you know, somebody asked for that, but there's not nearly enough pain to put it in. Uh, and you got to edit those things out and be super vigilant because once something's out there and been out there for a while, it's hard to take it away from people. So I would just say, you know, you can always add it later. <laughs> um, better to hold off until people are really screaming, like really like blood curdling screams of pain and then go ahead and build it. 
And one of the things you talked about uh, d- during um, this this last point was talking to enough people. And talking to enough people, you know, sounds easier than than said, especially when it comes to addressing small and medium businesses. What advice do you give to founders who are trying to not necessarily tackle your specific space, but who are trying to tackle small and medium businesses? And it's it's it, from a customer acquisition point of view, it, it's hard enough just getting mm-hmm. one person on the on the line, but then getting or a big enough sample size to really represent your target group is challenging. Yeah, I think if you're in small and medium business, it's almost easier than like enterprise. So just know that hey, there's other people who have a bigger problem than you do. So that's that's mm-hmm. good thing one because there are you know thousands or you know or millions of these kinds of businesses, and so uh, so that's good. And then how would you start? <clears throat> well, I think, um, you know, the first thing is to have at least a customer. Like, you got to have a customer in mind. But, but I, I think this is up to you to get creative. And what do I say by that? Like, I think there's scaling customer acquisition. That's not what I'm going to address right now. It's like, how do we get some of those first users? And, I, you know, you can do it through content marketing, putting some pieces out there. I would strongly encourage, I think in the early days, one of the best things you can do is go to conferences of your target market because you'll make real world relationships with folks. And those are, are sort of invaluable uh, because people who know you in the real world are more likely to spend time with you and, and give you feedback. Also, you get a better understanding, like in real life for people's real problem domain, because you might think, hey, I'm talking to you over the phone or I'm doing conducting surveys online. I think I understand you. You go to a conference and like, you know what they have for breakfast and where they slept last night, you know, what hotel or whatever it is. And, and that is all, um, just sort of paints in that picture. So you really know, you know, you know, the culture of the customer community that you serve and all these things, which, you know, I think are underestimated by people in sort of the lean startup world these days. Like, I think, I think you want to like really get a, a broader, a broader uh, understanding of folks, but yeah, I, I think, you know, I would say if you really just need a handful of people, um, you know, online, whether it's producing content, you know, some SEO pay-per-click kind of stuff, um, you know, trying to network with people who are inf- like blogger or what have you. Hey, would you, a lot of, a lot of people who like choose to write about an industry or, or a space are often people who would love to demo and try out early products to understand what they are, their early adopter types. So going to them and kind of, then they might introduce you to somebody. So I think it's, you know, there's no silver bullet. Mm. It's, it's kind of like pick some of these things and, and try and find your way. And, and then, you know, scaling is something else. On scaling, which is ironically, it was the next question I was going to ask you is a lot of people have a misconception about like when to hire the first salesperson or when to start the first sales function. And I'm I'm using the word sales function to avoid um, asking specifically a senior person or a junior person, just expanding the sales function beyond the founding team. When did you hire your first official sales function person? Well, maybe this is uh, useful uh, for, for many of you if you really are targeting small business. But the, the short answer is, um, well, I guess it all depends on how you, you measure and monitor them. But like we didn't have salespeople, you know, till, you know, pretty recently, like the last couple of years. So, you know, like over a decade, we were really marketing driven, like demand gen and touchless. That's not going to work for every offering. Our support people would certainly answer calls from inbound. But it was more a supporting, you know, sort of, hey, let me help you understand how to use it, you know, as opposed to like a, a prescribed sales effort. So, okay, so let's let's take a step back. So we started with basically marketing and service. 
And in so doing, we spoke with a lot of people. We understood their needs. We iterated the product. And uh, we're constantly in touch with them. And then to, to have you know, sales as your primary you know, mechanism for customer acquisition, depending on your business, you know, the size of the monthly charge or you know, annual charge or one-time charge that you're, you're running, you may or may not want to move to salespeople you know, sooner. I, I don't know. Or take a part of that. You know, again, we started with service take a part of that group and say, hey, we're going to have like onboarding or like, you know, not yet paying customer people that are just going to be dedicated to closing those folks. I think there's a bunch of ways you can do it. But, you know, this notion that you need to hire a salespeople, that person right away, I would say, you know, I'd encourage you to almost push it out as long as you can. <laughs> have as much of the founding and small team kind of perform those activities and have those conversations with people so they hear firsthand like why people aren't adopting, like what the objections are, they understand the needs set. Right. Like I, I would encourage you if you're like the founder or the CEO to do as many of those calls as you can for as long as you can to really, really understand the customer, because that'll help you. Those those formative years will help you understand, OK, we need to build this product for them. And then and then, you know, here's how we see the market evolving and to give you a place on time with you know what those expectations are and how they change over time. Well, that's helpful. And, and I think you touched upon a, um, a, a peripheral point around culture and messaging and I just wanted to get a sense for what your take is on that, because um, empowering anyone to be speaking to your customer requires a level of alignment with how you'd like to talk to your customer. And just walk us yeah. through how you thought through early days. I mean, I think today people are a lot more uh, sort of directly addressing and highlighting and articulating culture. But, you know, 2003, 2007, you know, I think it was something that people did, but they didn't necessarily catalog it the way that people do now, yeah. founders do now. Walk us through how you did that in order to provide the same the same level of uh, um, authenticity that you probably would hold those conversations with, but this same level of freedom that you would have. Yeah, so I will tell you what we did, and you can draw what you want from it. I'll also go ahead and say, you know, like upon reflection before I say this, I don't think what we did would work very well in a COVID world, okay? And I think this is actually a problem now for those of you who are, you know, like it's a real challenge. I'm sure you will all find ways to overcome it, but I think there's a new set of challenges because we're COVID and not in the same place. So I, I think, you know, in terms of selling, in terms of setting the tone for culture, in terms of how we communicate the message, um, being in the same room really, really helps. And so we literally moved into my parents' basement. We were there for three years. Um, you know, we heard, you know, when the phone rang, like we heard what somebody was saying to a customer, we could talk with them afterwards <laughs> and be like, oh, I'd frame it like this or like that. Um, we also had a bit of a channel progression where we'd start out with email and our first full-time support person, I mean, this is embarrassing. So let me just go ahead and say a couple of things. Uh, the first part that's not embarrassing is um, to help with this. I think the single best thing we did and have ever done for culture at FreshBooks, probably the best decision we ever made uh, for the company was kind of a non-decision. And that is everyone spends their first month in customer service. Okay. We teach you the history of the company. We teach you the business model. And then you spend like weeks talking with customers. We teach you the product. We teach you how to like, we give you like surface tickets so you can answer them and understand what it is. And then we get you on the food call shadowing and then you're actually answering phone calls and, and tickets. And so uh, the, the point is, you know, through that, 
process and that onboarding effort, you, you learn these things and you learn them pretty cool. Back in the basement, mm. you know, the part that I'm embarrassed to say, and like, maybe it's like some like OCD, you know, totally freakish service orientation that I have, but like our first full-time support person, despite being in the basement, we reviewed every email response to every customer that he did for like three months. <laughs> now, at that point, obviously, it was not a full-time, you know, start of the day, end of the day kind of job. And so it'd be like maybe five a day or something like that. And so, you know, fewer reps than you'd have today if you were doing it. But the point is, like, we were really, really mindful of what was going out to people. And, you know, sometimes you get a question and we don't, we don't know. So we got to make up the answer and think about what the implications are for the future. And when I say make up the answer, I mean, it influences. We're like, oh, we haven't thought of that. It's a great piece of feedback. Thank you for sharing it you know, here's what I do in the meantime would be the response to the ticket, but, but you're getting all that feedback from the, the clients in the process. And so anyways, that's what we did. Um, now you could presumably review those things uh, live, you know, still, if that was the approach you want to take, I don't know if you want to be that uh, sort of controlling, but, but it would, would help you. And, and then as for hearing phone calls and stuff like that, like, I don't know what you do in COVID, you know, to do it just without like passively, right? And so we have salespeople today that, you know, it's one of the biggest challenges for us is you're hiring like crazy. And how do you onboard salespeople so that they can learn from others around them and know how to position products and stuff? I think it's a real challenge for sales organizations around the world. It's not that it's insurmountable, but I think you got to do more training reps, like on, like basically you need to spend more time training your your uh, more sessions. It's not like an hour or two a week. It's probably like significantly more than that for the start, more shadowing, more of these kinds of things just to help people with it to overcome the, the remoteness of it all. So th that's actually a good segue to the next point that I wanted to talk about, which is really around human resources and, and how to scale human resources. And one of the, one of the questions that I asked you uh, at, the, at the beginning off, off, offline was how many employees you guys had right now and to try to remember back in the day when you only had 10 and scaled it up to 100. And I wanted you sort of to take that frame and, and maybe put the three points of advice that you'd give founders to get from that early 10 to 100. And I think one of the things that you were touching uh, upon right now is around training and, and oversight and, and sort of culture sharing. But maybe if you look back across all the lessons learned, what would be the three most important pieces of advice you'd give a founder scaling the organization? Um, well, it's probably communication and communication and communication uh, are the, the three things. So we were under 10 people for over three years. And I, I remember I, I give a talk on organizational breakpoints of basically, you know, 10 to 20 is one where you start to have managers and not everybody's reporting directly to you anymore. And then around 40, you get to this place where not everyone at the company knows everything that's going on anymore. And that feels very different. By the way, that's assuming you're all in the same office, which is less likely these days. And then uh, 80 is a place where if you don't do certain things, everything just breaks. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about what some of those are. And you know, the, the, the truth is, you know, I had never run a company before and I had never worked in a company before. And so most startups are running things like OKRs now. Um, yeah. I, I didn't really know about those. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and tying OKRs to like a vision and a purpose. So it's like, hey, everybody, this is the vision for the company. This is the mission that we're on and how we're going to kind of get there. And, you know, quarterly, here are the things we need to get done. And this team's doing this and this is like, you know, you think of that as like a quarterly all hands meeting, critically important. Okay. 
we hit 80 employees and we weren't really doing that. We were kind of more ad hoc. We'd have a couple of company meetings a year. They were kind of like financial in nature. And, you know, people were like starting to say, oh, I'm losing the purpose or whatever. And they all knew it. They spent a month in service. You know, like we got, we got by on the thing that like makes you strong will also almost kill you, right? And so because everyone spent that first month in customer service, we just got by on so much stuff for free. We didn't have to work hard to explain people why we did what we do or where we're going or any of that stuff because it was so imbued. But at 80 people, you know, I, I thought the sky was falling. And, and the answer was you got to get that quarterly meeting going. You got to talk about mission, vision, values, you know, relate the work of the quarter to this, talk about results, all that stuff, and do it at least quarterly. I think there's, you know, like kind of monthly updates um, and, and getting OKRs in place that are set up and communicated so each department knows what other departments are doing and people have accountabilities and they they ladder up to our, our mission and vision, uh, I think are all, all sort of critically, critically important. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's really just, uh, you can get, you know, in 10 employees, you can do a lot of the communication. Again, I'm like, this is like a non-remote comment, but it just, it just happens because you walk around the office, you talk to people, you don't need to be structured and have these like communication cadences. Uh, as you scale, you just need to get, you know, you don't need to get bureaucratic or formalized about it, but you need to be, you need to have a regular cadence where you're reinforcing certainly quarterly mission, vision, values, you know, and OKRs. And then I'd say ideally you're, you're sending like a monthly update or whatever or hosting like, you know, a weekly call with people, something like that, just so everyone's on the same page, right? And you reinforce, hey, these are the values of the company. It's what we're doing for our customers. Here's the things we're working on, you know, challenges and opportunities every, every week. If you tell that stuff to people, they'll all be on the same page. You know, great things will sort of flow from there. Well, on, on dealing with people, especially at that market you mentioned of 80 people you're already at the stage where there's or there's a a clear delineation between senior and junior team members and part of transitioning to some of the points that you mentioned of having quarterly uh okrs and and sharing your vision and and, and mission part of the challenge is deciding as a founder whether you want to lead that or whether you're going to crowdsource that from the senior management or senior co-founders of the team and i'm just curious as to how you did that in, in, in any mistakes that you made in trying to both uh, either, I mean, you could be n- n- without any kind of shame, uh, totally a, a dictatorial type founder for, you know, like, and, and you're you know proud of that. And there's a lot of people out there who are that way, right? Like Steve Jobs is one of them, but um, other people see themselves more as a democratic uh, crowdsourcing from the, the top uh, leadership of the organization, the best attributes, the best elements of their vision, or they OKR. So just want to understand how, you formalize that. How did you bring people in? How did you structure it? And then how long did that take as an out, uh, as a process? Well, let me, I'll, I'll try to stick to, um, you know, wh- what I sort of did, you know, for better or for worse and, and talk a little bit about the, the role. And, and I think diagnosing who you are as a, a founder and CEO, if we just speak to the founders and CEOs on the, uh, you know, sort of on the, 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 you know, who are tuning in. So, uh, you know, the first thing is you got to know, you know, what kind of founder and CEO you, you are. And that's hard to know. <laughs> like, I'll go ahead and say I had no idea. And, yeah. but, I, but I think there's, you know, there's, there's a few different types and broadly speaking, there are folks who are, are highly visionary, but not really able to operate or execute themselves, but they can tell you about the future. Right. And then there's, there's these uh, like the builder type, which is someone who can tell you about the future and, and can do, you know, some operational goodness. 
And then there's the operator who's like, you know, really operational savvy, savvy but maybe a little less visionary in, in nature. And so I, I think, first of all, know which one of those you are. And you probably want to compliment yourself, you know, by drawing on your team in a certain way. So I'm, I'm more the builder type. So I'm not, you know, I'm not a pure visionary. Uh, and, you know, like I, I see further into the future, I've learned over the years than more piece, most people, but there's people who can, you know, see further. And then, uh, you know, from operating standpoint, I, I can do okay, but there's people who are just, you know, that, that'll be never the thing I'm world-class at. But, but, but being able to do both helps me build, right? And so that's my, that's what I'm, I'm great at. And so what, where I started, uh, out and I think this worked for me was, you know, I don't know if it's dictatorial, but I largely, I, I would put stuff out there and have people beat it up. So that was my thing. It's like, I'm going to try and write this thing. You know, I probably have the customer and the spirit of the company most inside me, but I'm going to put something out like a vision statement and get people to tell me what they think of it. And we, we beat it up and we test and tune. And by the way, I actually found that surprisingly hard. <laughs> because uh, I didn't understand what a vision statement was, what purpose it needed to do. They kind of seem, you know, I read some for some companies, there are words on a page. And the truth is, um, you know, they have some elements that have to be there. But the flip of it is, um, you know, just picking something and committing with it is often like super, you know, like 99% of it, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, it's not about perfection. It's around, um, you know, having something. And so, so what I, you know, again, what I would do is I, that's what I would do. I would say, okay, going to be working on the vision statement. I put stuff out, senior team, and I would go beyond my senior team. Like to me, that's like a whole company, like small company, let, let anybody beat it up. Right. You know, I could hand it down from the mountain, but you know, chances are they're, they're my internal customers. They know whether it makes sense or not. And so that was, that was how I, I went about it. Um, and then from the, uh, you know, just really the, you know, the communicating of this stuff, I saw it as my responsibility to be the, the kind of face and the, you know, here's, you know, the connecting the customer to the operations to where we're going and all that stuff. But, you know, you'd want your senior leaders to, to present within their OKRs, their like departmental areas, right? Or some of these thematic things where it's like, okay, like, you know, now we're inviting now, Susan up, she leads marketing and here's, you know, here's what the marketing department's working on. Susan owns that, right? Because that's super important. And, uh, and so in that sense, you know, I think, uh, you know, Susan would be responsible for saying those OKRs, you know, she would do the same thing. Mike, here's what I think they are. You know, this is my draft. What do you think? And I'd be like, okay, we, we co-create those a little bit, but, um, you know, you want her to own them, right? I don't want to hand down all the specific stuff to her. You want her to own it. Right. And, uh, anyhow, so that, that was, that was more how I did it. Mm. No, that's very helpful. Actually, it gives people sort of a, a place to, to place themselves. And actually, I, I love those three. I mean, in some ways, they're obvious, but in, in some ways, it's great to hear them, right? The three different types of founder and what type you are. And, and I wanted to ask you a question about your leadership uh, lessons, but maybe we'll come back to that but because I, I sense that it'll come from one of those three. But maybe if we move to sort of the mistakes, you know, it says that, you know, people say that mistakes are the way that you can learn the most and some of the best growth that you've ever had in your life comes from massive mistakes. I want to maybe just open it up. I don't want to specifically yeah. single out any one mistake, but the well, biggest mistake you I, made early days and how did you recover from it? Yeah. I, I, why don't we just go to like, you know, what's the difference between leadership lessons and mistakes? Like <laughs> they're kind of one and the same, right? So maybe let's go there for, for today. Cause I, you know, I don't have a ton that I look back on with regret in terms of the mistakes, right? You know, it is all kind of learning. Uh, and, and, you know, I think also we, you know, we're here and we've been successful successful over this timeline because uh, we have had relatively good judgment about things. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, you know, I, 
you know, relatively good. Um, so, so, well, okay. So I'll give you one example of a mistake. Okay. Let's go there. That's non people related. Uh, and maybe it was people related in the end. Um, but, but we, we tried to implement like data warehousing and analytics, you know, very early days. And I was like, this is super important. I totally believe in it. It's going to make a big difference for us. And we went and implemented or tried to implement like SAS, S-A-S, which is like enterprise grade, you know, so you need data warehouses, you know. And so being completely naive and not really understanding this, like first you need data warehouses before you're analyzing the data, right? And so we didn't even really have those. And so, so we were trying to, we basically spent a bunch of time. When I say a million dollars, it's not like we went and bought a million dollars of software, but we were paying for SaaS licenses. We did have three or four people trying to put together warehouses and start to analyze stuff. And it was a terrible idea. Like a, a much better plan is to, we had obviously done some stuff with Excel, but, but um, you know, we, we just didn't stay simple for long enough. We didn't understand the value of having good warehousing, how to do it. And when we were doing this, frankly, you know, things like Amazon Redshift or BigQuery, you know, Google, all this stuff, like data lakes, like th these were not things that people understood as well. And we were having to host all our own data, you know, because we were a managed service. So it, it was frankly more complicated to do back then. Um, but, you know, we spent a lot of time and effort and, and probably most painfully lost a lot of time, right? Because you're trying to do this thing. And, you know, ultimately, I think we got very little out of it. And that, that, that is, you know, that was a big effort in some people's lives, call it even like 18 months of people plugging away. And eventually it was just like, we should stop. <laughs> you know, like we're just, we're not getting anywhere. Uh, you're certainly not getting the return. And so, um, so what is the lesson you take from that? I don't know, twofold. One, keep it simple, right? Like buying the enterprise grade tool for the small company is probably, you know, the wrong thing to do. We could have got further with Excel and pivot tables, frankly. Uh, and, uh, and then I guess the other one is you, you really need to, and I think this is a lesson, unfortunately, I've learned too many times is, you know, we have always solved in hiring at FreshBooks for athletic people is what I'll call them is people who are a good, uh, they, they bring something to us culturally, you know, get a shared value set, but they're athletic. They, they love to go and solve problems and they can. And where I've probably shortchanged us in our hiring recruitment efforts is, is going and getting expertise. So we'd hire an engineer who, you know, didn't know much about a thing and then, you know, have them go solve our warehousing problem uh, as opposed to hiring somebody who's been there, done that and got the T-shirt. And I, I, I think it's a, fine, a hard balance because you read about, you know, just hire a smart person and, and throw them on it as like, you know, the startup way to go ahead and do things. But I'll just say there's a series of, of problems we've encountered over the years where, you know, some expertise and experience would have been really <laughs> helpful. And we probably lost a lot of time, you know, doing everything from first principles, as opposed to things that really matter and are going to be differentiators for your business. Like how we warehouse our data, you know, is not a place where we need to differentiate ourselves. So let's go get somebody who's done that before, have them build it, maybe outsource it to a consulting firm, like all things that I would look at now and, and do differently than I did back then. Mm. I know that we're living in a very different era now than when early days, but one thing you've touched upon several times is the importance of physical location for the FreshBooks culture. In the, in the remote world, do you think that you would have been able to, to function? Do you think that the company is today would have been the same? 
Um, I'll go with, well, to just address that statement kind of out of context or whatever, probably not the same at all. Um, would we have been able to function? I believe we would have found a way. I mean, we're finding a way now with over, you know, 400, you know, trending to 500 people and, and it's been remarkably smooth and orderly. Now, I think that's because of, you know, how, how we set the table in the early days when we were all together, right? But there's, you know, there's, there's remote first companies out there. So I, I, I think, you know, would it be different? Yes. <laughs> uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It just, it just would be. Uh, yeah. And so if, if you look back at that growth curve, um, which helped establish some of those fundamentals, which now has let you be able to smoothly transition into remote, if you look back at that and you try to identify one inflection point that really kind of fundamentally sp sprung your company to the next level, um, to maybe even exponential levels, what was that inflection point? There wasn't one. You know, like, I, I don't know, this is this stuff kind of, uh, there's this whole, you know, some people have a great answer for this. And there was exactly this moment or whatever it was. But, you know, I, I think success is built by a million little acts, you know, all kind of directionally correct, but none of them showing you any real result. Right. And you're just you're kind of headed in a direction. And eventually, you get enough momentum going, that you sort of keep keep going and, and um, you know, and, and you, you, you make progress. And then all of a sudden, once you have momentum, my word, like that's really something. But momentum rarely comes from like a one-off thing. Now, for some companies and some industries, maybe it's like getting a certain partner to acknowledge them or whatever it is. That's all well and good. I think for us, it was, you know, any, you know, event that we had was started way before with, you know, a million things nobody noticed or could could point to. So I just don't think, you know, in my experience, it's like that. And so I don't like to perpetuate that myth because I think it's the wrong way to think about it for most companies. Um, anyhow, so that's, that'll be my, uh, that's what I have to say about that. And, and, I, and I would, and I would say that for us uh, as an organization, I would say that, that, that sounds true to us as well. Uh, but, you know, it, it is funny. I, I, I do know a few companies that have benefited from any one inflection point, including COVID, uh, who come out the other end a lot uh, better because of the migration to, to software or remote work. Um, well, let's, let's go there for, for one second. It's like, I do think, I just, because I just want to talk about COVID for a second. There's some companies who will literally just benefit because people are going to go online and whatever. But, but I think also, like, I just want to call out that, because you said are better when they come out. Like, we went through the 2008 financial crisis, and that was like an existential threat or so we feared at the time, and we came out the other side. And so I don't know that that was an inflection point. But I, I do want to call out there, there are a variety of things along the way where you, you sort of get tested and um, you, you survive. And whether you're really, you know, an inflection point, new trajectory or more, you know, sort of self-resolve that you can, you can survive and move forward and improve. And, and maybe you got a little leaner and a little stronger. You know, those are, those are, those are good things that, you know, you hear about as being good things and they are, right? Like, honestly, like so much of the startup game is just making it to the next round, right? Like, can I just stay in the game a little longer? And you don't want to be like a dead company going sideways, but sometimes, you know, that's what, you know, actually you need to do until you actually catch fire, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I think people are often looking for this, well, I put the app out there, I got a million downloads, I win. And, you know, I, I just, I would just, you know, suggest that that's just generally speaking, not how it really works. Mm -hmm. And that actually brings me very 
very smoothly into the last question um, that I had kind of on this sort of series of, of questions. And it has to do with the people that are on the sidelines who are voting for you, in effect, uh, by investing in your company or, or effectively being shareholders in your company, but not necessarily being involved in an executive capacity. And with a company like yours that has had a 17-year trajectory through highs and lows, what advice would you give to founders in dealing with shareholders, not only in terms of like setting expectations for timeframes, but also in overcoming some difficulties like the ones you've gone through? Um, okay, a couple of thoughts. So on the, just go with the difficulties. I, I will say, I think one thing we've had going for us and I feel very lucky uh, and privileged about is just our business model. It's recurring revenue subscription. And so our low points from a shareholder perspective have not been, you know, as low as some companies, you know, m might be, right? Because, you know, even through 2008, even through COVID, like pretty resilient business model. Um, so our low points might be like, you know, we didn't grow quite as much as we wanted to, you know, and then the next year you, you grow more than you thought. So, so it's like down to budgeting and expectation setting. And so for that, I'll go to like, you know, the power of expectation setting. Um, you know, I'm just a big fan of lower expectation setting. <laughs> uh, and we, we waited over a decade, I mean, I think over a decade to, to bring on any institutional capital. And part of me for that was I just had a feeling this would take a while and I didn't want somebody else's timeline to influence what we needed to go ahead and do. Um, so, so with that, <clears throat> I'll go ahead and say um, I think low expectations are, are helpful. Uh, you know, when we were, we, we raised a little bit of angel money and I would always just say like, listen, you know, you're not getting this back, right? Like if you, if you raise like angel money and you're like, you know, I'm going to deliver you a 10x return, you should give me a check. I honestly like, you know, there's one person at the table, you know, who, who, uh, who's like, you know, like looking at the other being like, you're, you're, you're full of it. So just don't put yourself in that position. Just be like highly risky. Here's what we think we can do. Like, you know, there. And that, that just sets the tone and tenor. So people are like excited if you're, you're succeeding, you know, folks in the series A in the early rounds of financing, we, we skipped the series A and kind of went to a, you know, our first, our series A was like $30 million. But, but the, the, what I would say about that is they're going to hold themselves accountable to their decision-making on a 24 month window. Okay. So, I mean, you probably want to tell them what you're going to do in like 20 years they're going to decide whether or not they made a good call based on where you are in 24 months, right? And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But if you hit roughly your plan over the next 24 months, not your 10-year plan that you told them, they'll say to themselves, okay, I made a good decision. And so if you know that that's really their expectation set and you can set up to like, here's what we can accomplish in two years, <laughs> that's what you're buying. Uh, you know, I think that helps to, to align things a little. And then finally, what I'd say, because we didn't, we talked about shareholders, not really like board members and things like that. For board members, let's go ahead and say that there's lots of things. They're all pretty subtle and nuanced, but there is a golden rule, which is no surprises. And I think this is probably true of shareholders as well. Like if you have bad news, like really bad news, don't delay. If you have an operational setback that's significant, like communicate, right? Like just don't, don't wait for the annual meeting or whatever it is or the board meeting to go ahead and say these four terrible things happened. Like send a note that day, right? Like just... And, and that'll build trust because people know you're not going to bury the bodies, you know, and, and they just want to build and trust. If people know these companies are not perfect, you know, and, and there's so much uncertainty you're dealing with. So the question is, hey, can we trust this person, right? Do we trust them and do we want to continue to support them in one way or another? And I think, you know, by being forthright and, uh, you know, truthful, 
and honest and, and straightforward, those two things, they just, they take you a long way. So that's, that's the guidance I would give. No, that's fair. That's fair. And, and maybe to, to end on a personal note, you know, with, with the journey you've had and some of the highs and lows, uh, there's obviously a lot of personal sacrifice that every founder goes through. And maybe you can share any kind of words of wisdom or anecdotes about how you've managed uh, your personal life, uh, your family, and balance that. I think there's two schools of thought on work-life balance uh, in this world of entrepreneurship. One of them is there is no such thing. And the others are people who actively try to find that. And maybe just share your views on that. Yeah, so uh, the first thing is, and it's funny because uh, this, this word's characterized in a, in a way. There's people who want to run lifestyle businesses. And, um, you know, those are businesses that are, probably don't have outside investors. They may not, you know, become massive companies, but they provide a nice income. Uh, I would want to say I want, you know, I've always chosen lifestyle sports. So I was really into like downhill skiing and I went and lived on a ski mountain when I was like 17 and like was a lift operator and really got into it. Uh, I got really into ultimate Frisbee and like, you know, played like nationally and internationally and all this stuff. And it was, it was these are sports that you get really into deep into. And so for me, I, I've always wanted a job that is kind of like a lifestyle, meaning like this notion of work-life balance is, you know, it's really like, no, you're surfing. Like there's just stuff going on all the time and you got to kind of ride the waves and the flows and the ups and downs. And it's your job to manage yourself to make sure it sort of works out. And that might take you into work-life balance. And so in the early days when I worked for myself in the consulting business, um, I would just run myself into the ground all the time because I wouldn't take a weekend and then I'd be working on the weekend and then Monday comes and I would be totally burnt out. And so, so I think then I realized like, oh, I won't be able to keep doing what I'm doing and enjoy it if I do that to myself. So maybe that brings you to work-life balance. Um, so then, so that, so those are like, I got really good, you know, I, I got really, for me, like I'm the sort of person, I can't look at a screen an hour or two before I go to bed or I don't sleep well. So I got to shut that off, right? Friday night about seven o'clock, I don't look at my phone anymore until about Sunday. So if you email me, don't expect to get a reply. Sunday night, maybe I'll get back to you. It's even trending into Monday morning a little more these days. So that's, you know, those, and then I get, I get a break to recharge, right? So that's, that's work-life balance. I think it's super important. It's, it's pretty uncommon, but you know, that's, that is, that is, these are the things that I need to do to stay good. Um, and then, you know, I think like I will just, you know, fully disclosed, was very committed to the business for a lot of years, you know, just the past sort of, I have a five-year-old son now is kind of my oldest kid. Um, you know, that's that, that waited a little longer for me. I'll go ahead and say, I didn't notice having a family impacting my ability to work as much until COVID came along. And it is a stunt with three kids under five, including an infant. It is astonishingly hard to be a parent during COVID and, you know, move things along with a business, right? It is, it is, and I'm sure everybody has different challenges, but I, I don't believe I could be the person or the parent I want to be and do the stuff if we, you know, the organization I weren't set up to, to be uh, doing what it would just be very hard to do as effectively as like nine to five. Uh, and so I, I put those out there as if you're struggling with that, I totally get it. I know you can do it, but uh, it is indeed hard. Um, and so I don't know. Those are some of the things for me uh, and some of the perspectives. So one is the mindset. I don't expect 
it to be, you know, one way or another, it's a job to go ahead and balance yourself out. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then it's like, you know, don't, uh, you know, don't lose sight of uh, the stuff outside of work will always be, uh, you know, when you look back in time, like, you, you know, you only have so many weekends with your kids, right? You can count them on, you know, it's probably, I, I was thinking about what is the math on it, you know, till, till your kids are like, no, dad, I don't want to play with you. I want to play with my friends, right? It's like, it's not that many weekends. So, uh, you know, don't, uh, yeah, nothing matters more than that. Fair enough. Well, with that, thank you so much, Mike. It has been amazing to hear your story. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, until next time. Bye.